Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers to hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. The only thing that mattered to me about becoming a director was longevity. I wanted to make sure that my career would last for decades. I make work to change the world. I think that's the only reason to do anything. And getting a group of people in to start a conversation with the community and with the society you live in is going to be the greatest thing you can do. Today I talk with two movie directors who've each had enormous success with very different types of films. Stephen Daldry got his start in theater, he's British, and his transition to filmmaking appeared effortless. His first three films, Billy Elliot, The Hours, and The Reader, featured complicated characters and serious topics, class struggle, the search for life's purpose, and war crimes. Each film also earned him an Oscar nomination for Best Director. My first guest, Chris Columbus, has brought to the screen some of the biggest American family films of the last 20 years. Adventures in Babysitting, Home Alone, Mrs. Doubtfire. He also produced and directed the first two Harry Potter films and produced the third as well. I'm a what? A wizard and a thumping good and I'd wager once you trade up a little. No, you've made a mistake. I mean, I can't be a, a, a wizard. I mean, I'm just Harry. I've known Chris for a long time. We were in school together at NYU. I lived at, uh, started at Weinstein and then um, moved to Reuben. You were in Reuben? I was in Reuben, and I think that's where we met. That's how I was in Reuben. Yeah. For Columbus, NYU was more than just a place to learn the craft he loved. Film school for me was the only, it was sort of the only way out, you know. Um, I grew up in a, both of my parents were factory workers in Ohio. Um, my future was basically working at either my father's aluminum factory or my mother's automotive factory. Literally. They didn't own them. They was just, <laughs> right. I was, I'd just be working. 
Because if they did, you could own them now. I could own them so now. So you made a bad decision. <laughs> I did. Although I don't think uh, right. there's much work there. But at the time, that was it. You know, and, and the only escape, really, for me, uh, were movies. And what were movies to you then? There was no uh, DVD. There was no, no cable television. How did you... Movies were the uh, either the CBS late-night movie. I would sneak out of bed and watch the late-night movie on CBS at oh, 11.30. The late show. And just stay in the movie theaters on the weekend. There were only two theaters, and I would watch whatever film came into town over and over. And I remember... Something clicked when I saw uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and I, I watched it three times, and I, I just was amazed by the movie. And I didn't – nobody knew about film schools. Nobody knew that you could actually go to school and learn how to become – I didn't even know what a director was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put my energy into illustrating and writing comic books. I thought – still didn't understand the film concept, but I started to draw Spider-Man comics, Thor comics, Hulk comics. I wanted a job at Marvel – in the Marvel universe. Did you universe. think about that seriously? That was my goal. I still love movies, but I, I didn't understand how to get into it. It inaccessible. Yeah. Completely inaccessible. I felt the same way. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the comic books and all of the – this is very naive of me, but all the comic book superheroes lived in New York City. So this was this <laughs> magical place for me as a kid because I'm drawing New York City all of the time. Mm-hmm. Then I saw The Godfather. The Godfather was re-released. And then the next movie I saw was Blazing Saddles. I saw those two movies changed my life both ends of the spectrum i realized with blazing saddles the possibilities of what you could do with film were endless right and time magazine came out with a one-page article about film schools and i read about martin scorsese and i read about francis ford coppola and i read about usc and ucla and nyu and i said to my parents this is what i want to do what did they say they were extraordinarily supportive. They were. They were amazingly supportive. Every other relative in my family was not supportive. Right. I got to New York, and I remember my father drove me up to Weinstein, and he looked at the city and looked at the dorm, and he said, let's go home. I'll drive you back home now. And I said, no way. No way. I was in, I was literally in Oz. And I knew that I had no choice but to succeed. I had to find a way to succeed, or I would be back in the middle of Ohio working in an aluminum factory. So you get there, and you ever touched any film equipment before? Uh, yeah, super. My parents did buy me a Super 8 sound camera, which enabled me to to start to make films. Actually, I made a twenty minute film for my theology class because I went to a very strict Catholic school. So it was a theology class that was dealing with social issues. So we made a film about abortion. Uh, vasectomies, and I was very inspired at the time by SNL. Remember, SNL just nineteen what nineteen seventy six. SNL had just come. You know, we would spend our Saturday nights watching Saturday Night Live. So I was doing these basically commercial parodies that I versions that I had seen on SNL, and I screened it for for the class. The class loved it. The priest was horrified. Yeah. Um, What did your parents say about all your? politically incorrect filmmaking. It was very <laughs> dark stuff back then. You know, was, what did they say? They, you know, my my mother went with it. My father didn't really want to have much to do with it. He figured, okay, that, you know, my father was most, most of the time my father was under a car repairing it, you know, in, in the garage when he wasn't right. working or having a beer. So I... Um, as long as he's not on the streets. Like, exactly. He can my make, parents. Yeah, as long as he's not taking drugs. That's true. You know, my mother was very supportive. My mother was probably much more supportive than my father about what I wanted to do. And she had, she shared sort of that dark sense of humor that I had as well. I used to watch SNL with her. 
She loved it. So you, you get to Weinstein. You, you had a Super 8 sound camera, but you get to Weinstein. And what's, what are the first recollections you have of that when you get there to go to NYU? Honestly, NYU, the night I got there, the drinking age was 18, sponsored a bar tour. Can you imagine them doing that these days? Sure. Eight to ten bars in the East Village, they would take a group of freshmen and go to each yeah. bar. Chumley's. Chumley's, uh, McSorley's. Sure. And that's where I met my best friends, and the, the, that's where I met my future producing partner, Michael Barnathan. We met that first night. Bar night. And, and uh, yeah, you could be, I mean, the lawsuits are ridiculous. And we met, I mean, you know what, it, what it's like. You go into this community of everyone who shares your deepest love of something like film, yeah. and you have someone to talk to about it. I had yeah. no one to talk to about it in Ohio. Yeah. You know, I was this. Everyone's come there. Yeah. From the aluminum factory. And then when you left NYU, what did you do? I left NYU. I had actually, I was lucky enough, I had a... 1980. 1980, I left. But in 78, I had a scholarship. I, I had this great scholarship that got me through NYU the first year. And my mother would call me. You remember, we had those pay phones at the end of our dorm hallways. Right, right, right. There's no cell phone. So every Sunday, I would go to the pay phone and call home. And my mother would say, Chris, don't forget to go to the bursar's office and sign. I had to sign some papers so I would renew my scholarship. And I would say, Mom, no problem. That went on for six weeks. The seventh week I called, she was screaming at me. She said, you lost the scholarship. This summer, you're going to have to work at the aluminum factory. So, <laughs> so I, went back, oh, no. I went back to Ohio and I was working basically swing shifts. I would work Were you day really? shifts, afternoon shifts, and night shifts. This is after your first year. My first year. I realized if I was on the night shift, I could read. So that first year, I was just read, you know, novels for eight hours. I had to do it again after my sophomore year. So I went back my sophomore year and I realized if I could get on the night shift for, for the entire summer, I could write a screenplay. So what I did is I remember these gigantic hulking cylinders of aluminum. And I would sneak behind the aluminum cores and sit there with a notepad and I wrote my first screenplay. A screenplay called Jocks about high school football. My experiences with high school football, and I was a terrible football player, but I, I, I you know, it was a very you personal story. Up, yeah. yeah, I suited up. And I brought that back to my writing teacher, a guy named Jesse Kornbluth, who gave it to his agent. Some guy, a, a producer who's since passed away, Steve Friedman, optioned it for five grand. That five grand prevented me from ever having to go back to the aluminum right. factory. And then when I was out, you know, after college, I just, uh, my agent started to get me writing gigs. A friend of mine, Mitch, said, you know, there hasn't, since Jaws, there really hasn't been a great movie that's featured. He used the word monster. There has not been a great monster movie made. And I said, uh, that's a good idea. That's interesting. And in the loft I lived in, we had these mice scurrying around on the floors, and I would sleep with my hand draped over the bed, and mice would go by in the middle of the night. I thought, these tiny creatures are frightening. So I spent the next six weeks writing the script called Gremlins. Right. And I sent it to my agent who um, liked the script but felt it was a little dark and still sent it to about 50 producers and uh, studio executives. And everyone passed on it. And Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, was leaving his office on a Friday and passed his secretary's desk and it was sitting there. That's why so much of this business is luck. Yeah. He passed the script and saw the title and said, oh, that looks interesting. Picked it up, read it that weekend. And decided he wanted to option the movie. Now, I didn't know this. 
I got a call at my loft. Barnathan answers the phone and says, there's someone on here who says he's Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I get, I get the phone and he goes, Chris, it's Steven Spielberg. I was stunned. My God. And I lived in L.A. for nine months at that point. So what happens in that nine months? He's giving you notes or there's creative people? He would give me notes. Now, Gremlins was sort of off and running, and someone else was even rewriting it as I was working on another script for Steven. For some strange reason, I had sort of carte blanche. I could go into his office. He would be sitting there with Richard Gere or, or, uh, <laughs> or Warren Beatty one time. He's like, Chris, come on in. What do you? And, yeah. and I would start to talk to him about ideas. One day, he's looking through these old EC comic books, and he says, look at this title, Chris, The Goon Children. And I said, The Goon Children, that's a cool title. And we came up with this story together about these kids who find a treasure map, and it was The Goonies. I would write three pages of Goonies, run to Stephen's office, give it to him. He would make some notes. I would run back to my office and make the changes. Then I wrote Young Sherlock Holmes with him, kind of in the same way. What did you learn from Spielberg? Spielberg was like graduate school of filmmaking for me. Right. Spielberg was like, um, I learned shortcuts. Basically, it was a Billy Wilder quote that Stephen you know, nailed into my head every day, which was, don't tell the audience something more than once. I learned how to edit material, I learned how to write better dialogue, and I learned how to be much more visual as a writer from Stephen. So it was a great relationship, you know. Um, and it still is a great relationship to this day. We yeah. had the opportunity to work together a couple of years ago. So I, I really loved that time, but at the same time, I needed to get back to Manhattan. Why? I don't know. I just felt like I, miss, I missed it. I mean, it was a, it's a very simple... But did you have a sense, because I find other people have the same thing... It's better for me to stay here for my career. You, you didn't think along those lines. No, I, I don't think at the time I was able to articulate it. You know, 20, 30 years down the road, now I can look back and, and understand why I did it. Because I, I was seeing the beginning of people losing touch with reality. Why do directors not have long careers? They don't have long careers because they become extremely successful. They move into these huge mansions and live an isolated life. They watch movies in their screening room. They don't do their own grocery shopping. They don't pump their own gas. They don't get out there on the street. At the end of all that, you've lost connection to real people. What are you making movies about? I realized the reason I went back to New York was to connect with everyone again. So I could go to the corner superette and buy a carton of orange juice for $40. That hasn't changed to this day. I have not change. You know, I have a great housekeeper now in San Francisco, but for the most part, again, because I'm a director and nobody really knows what the hell I look like, I'm you've, anonymous. Yeah, you, but you've, yeah, you've kept this very low profile. The only thing that mattered to me about uh, becoming a director was longevity. I wanted to make sure that my career would last for decades, no matter what I was doing. And I, I felt that part of that has been this ability to sort of hide in plain sight in a weird way. Now I understand it. So you're a writer, and you do Gremlins, and you do Goonies, and you do Young Sherlock Holmes. Is the notion of you directing a film, is it starting to percolate? Do you go to Spielberg and say, I want to direct this one? No, it came. It started with Jesse Kornbluth. Jesse Kornbluth put into my head at NYU, the only way you're going to get to become a director is by writing a few successful screenplays. After uh, Young Sherlock Holmes, then I realized Goonies and Gremlins had been successful enough that maybe I could get a directing gig. My agent sent me a copy of the script called Adventures in Babysitting. Elizabeth Shue. With Elizabeth Shue and uh, Anthony Rapp. 
I love this. I love the script. I thought this is something I could do. And I had great producers, Linda Opst and Deborah Hill, who were very supportive of me as a first-time director. The first day on the set was a little, little horrifying. How so? I, it was my dream to be directing a film, yet at the same time, I realized I had to go hunt to the set and face 250 people and sure. tell them what to do. And you'd you know? never done that before? No. I got over my fear pretty quickly because I had to. It's like jumping off. Do you still have an apprehension about that now? When it's first day of school, and I mean shooting, yeah. it's not Chris who was drawing his Marvel comics. <laughs> right. It's not Chris that was hiding behind the aluminum spools, right. writing scripts and everything while everybody else is taking a nap at the aluminum factory. It's not Chris alone. There's the writer-director who has this kind of monastic process. Then there's the guy that's got to go out and be the captain of the ship on the deck of the ship with 250 or 300 people there. Right. So that's a skill you had to develop. Correct. I think so, but I again because well, definitely so. You know, it was terrifying yeah. the first couple of days, but then I it's realized, yeah, I realized that a lot of these crew guys were like beaten animals because directors. There are so many directors who are such assholes. They're right. so kind of cruel and angry yeah. and mean. they're working something out on the set of the film. Yeah, yeah, and I thought that won't work for me, and I realized after three or four weeks that people were responding just to the fact that I was not grumpy in the morning, that I wasn't pissed off all the time. <laughs> the fact that I was genuinely a pretty happy guy, and I really valued what everybody was doing. And if somebody made a mistake, I wasn't ready to rip their head off. I just, I understood it. So, so you're there, you make the film, and what happens? The film opened to like $7 million back then, which was a perceived disaster. So I'm thinking I'm never going to work again. What happened is the second weekend, it did something that no film, the, the, some, certain films few do, films. few films do, uh, which is it shot up 40% in attendance. So we did better the second weekend. I was able to go off and make another film then. What do you go do? I pitched a film to Jeffrey Katzenberg, and I went off and wrote something else instead, a movie called Heartbreak Hotel about right. my own obsession with Elvis Presley. The movie opens on a Friday. I read Roger Ebert's review calling it one of the worst films of the year. Um, Once again, I'm thinking, it's over. I'll go back to writing. At the time, my first child, Eleanor, was born, and I got a script uh, from John Hughes. We both had the same agent, and he said, do you want to do the third Christmas Vacation movie? I was like, that's not really, I didn't dream of becoming a filmmaker to do that particular movie, but I thought I needed the gig and John yeah. Hughes is supporting me. So I started to do that movie. I shot second unit and I had such a disastrous relationship with the star, Chevy Chase, <laughs> who, you know, he has no shortage of enemies. It yeah. was so disastrous yeah. and so humiliating for me, just based on three meetings. That I quit. I said, John, I can't do this. Yeah. I cannot make did this John, movie. Did John get that? Did John, John understand? He goes, he's like, you know, Chevy's a complicated guy. Yeah. He's complicated. a rich food. I yeah. said, let, let me tell you something. He treat, he, if, when I first walked in, he thought I was an assistant. Yeah. So I'm like, I can't really work this way. I, I, and so I, I quit. And then I was really, I thought I was really in trouble. And John and I got along great. So John sent me the script for Home Alone. Again, luck. And I fell in love with the script. I thought it was a great script. I think he wrote it in two days. I loved him. Mm -hmm. Loved him. I mean, his life and how he went and how he kind of left and, you know, gave up and moved back to Chicago. Not gave up, but he kind of of walked away from it. It was always so sad to me Mm because I thought, 
God, I, I mean, I was hoping I could become the next John Candy in his career and just right. be the, the grown, uh, leading, crazy Uncle Buck of the next right. barrage of films of his. I loved working with him, mm-hmm. loved him. What was your experience like with him? It was exactly the same. Um, I walked off of a movie that he had given me. For some strange reason, I think he respected that or yeah. he understood it. And it being Chevy, he understood. Yeah, I think so. And he, <laughs> uh, you know... When I read this script, I thought, this is a gift, this script. This script is really, really important. And the only concern I had was I had a, uh, you know, I had a newborn at the time, and John liked to work from about 10, when he, was ri- when he was a producer in writing, you know, he wrote all night long. So we would be doing pre-production during the day on Home Alone, and then for story meetings, I'd go to his house in Lake Forest, and we'd work from 10 to about 5 in the morning. So I was getting... During the pre-production hours of, of uh, Home Alone, I was getting about two hours sleep. And John told these great stories. So he would tell stories. You probably remember this. And smoke. This, and smoke. And these stories would go on for three hours before we ever got into the movie, yeah. the fact that we were making a movie. Who cast Macaulay? Well, John put him in Uncle Buck. Right. And John said, you should see this kid. But John never said, cast him. Yeah. So Macaulay came up to my New York apartment, he and his father. The first kid I met. And he was incredibly charming and terrific. But I said to John, just because I felt like I wanted to be responsible, I said, I should meet some other kids. So I met about 300 other kids and then <laughs> right. came back around to Macaulay. Yeah. Let me get back to you, John. I'm going to go meet 300 <laughs> other kids and then I'll call you about Macaulay. I had to do my job. Yeah. You know? he, but Macaulay was the first one you saw. You know, it was, it, it was an interesting situation, kind of like the kids in, in Harry Potter a little bit. Macaulay had only done one or two movies. So he would do a line, one line, maybe two lines, and then get distracted. So a lot of that film is cut into pieces right. just so we could get a, uh, his performance together. But what happened on screen was amazingly charming. And you had uh, Hurd as the father. John Hurd, yeah. And Catherine as the mother. Now, Hurd thought he was making Hurd, who I love. <laughs> but I loved him in Cutter's Way. Remember, <laughs> exactly. Cutter's Way, one of the great performances. Exactly, yeah. But while he was making Home Alone, he thought he was making the, the biggest piece of shit in the world. Right. And he was, he was a pain in the ass a little yeah. bit. He comes back on Home Alone 2... And the first day he's shooting, I yell, action, he, he breaks character. And he said, I just would like to say to Chris and the crew, I owe you a big apology. You made a great movie the first time, and I'm here to support you. Right, <laughs> I thought, right. wow, we have it in dailies. I still have yeah. a tape of that. And I got to work with John Candy for the first time. And John Candy came in for one day of shooting. We had him for one day, and he has like six scenes in the movie. So we shot for 24 hours, Oof. 24 hours straight. And Candy kept going. He yeah. just would c- continue to improvise. And it was my first sort of foray into improvisation. John would do a scripted take, and then he would start to play. Gus Polinski, hard. Polka King of the Midwest. And he loved improvising. He was, he was uh, brilliant at it. I had a few hits a few years ago. Uh, that's why, I, you know, just polka, polka, polka. Polka, polka, polka. No? It, Twin Lakes polka. Damavuji polka, a.k.a. Kiss Me polka. Polka twist. In a minute, Chris Columbus talks about working with another brilliant improviser, Robin Williams. We've come to this planet looking for intelligent life. Oops, we made a mistake. We're happy to be in America. Don't ask for a green card. <laughs> I want you in the worst way. Well, it's certainly a rough meeting, and it's not going very well for me, I'll tell you that. This is Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive, where you can hear more interviews with artists, scholars, and performers. Turns out Chris Columbus isn't the only one with a mother who was 
was a diehard SNL fan. My mom really loved Saturday Night Live. She did. She loved it. She, I remember her talking about Chevy Chase, and she would say, like, Oh, Chevy Chase, he's so funny. You just look at his face and you want to laugh. <laughs> Listen to my interview with comedian Fred Armisen at heresthething.org. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Chris Columbus says he wanted to work with Robin Williams ever since he saw him in Good Morning Vietnam in 1987. Five years later, Columbus got his chance. I feel like I've known you for years. Maybe we knew each other in another life. <laughs> I would love for you to come and work with us. So would I. Great. Oh, it would be an honor. To us. To us. The start of a business relationship. Mrs. Doubtfire, a film about a divorced father who dresses as a Scottish nanny to trick his ex-wife into hiring him to care for their kids, won a Golden Globe for Best Comedy. Robin Williams won a Globe for Best Actor. But before all that would happen, before the filming even began, Chris Columbus had to meet Williams for lunch. And I was terrified. I'd worked with guys like Pesci, who I admired, and, and Dan Stern, but... Robin was a true superstar at the time, right. and I was I was nervous about how it would go, and we just we hit it off immediately. You know, we wanted to, we really connected. Much of Mrs. Doubtfire was shot in San Francisco, and Columbus took the opportunity to move his growing family out west. It's a great place to raise a family, I and I felt Manhattan would be a little difficult. I was walking down the street in Manhattan with my 
toddler and I couldn't hear what she was saying to me. I couldn't, mm. you know, she's telling, and I thought I've got to, I've got to yeah. be in a calmer place. Yeah. And I also fell in love with the city. San Francisco is a great city. Great city. And great I had, city. and the relationship with Robin was, uh, still is terrific. I had a great relationship with Robin. And with Robin, again, it's like an, ex- it's like a, a steroid version of John Candy where you, John liked to improvise. But Robin lives to improvise. Right. So it was almost like seeing a, a Springsteen concert where he has to exhaust himself after four and a half hours of playing before he can go to sleep at night. With Robin, it was the same thing. We would shoot anywhere from 12 to 15 takes for each scene. And we would start with a very structured, scripted take and then move off of the script and change everything and that's why that picture had to be shot with two or three cameras because so do the execs at Fox know that when you're going in to make a film and you have someone who's as varied and who's as uh, um, uh, who's as uh, uh, what's the word you know as spontaneous as he is do you call them up after the first week of shooting and say fellas just tear up the budget we've got to start all over again no we stayed under we stayed not under budget but we stayed on budget maybe we went over one or two days because he is fast he's oh. lightning fast and right. we shot with two or three cameras so he understood the, the, the cost uh, benefit analysis of his improvisations he wasn't somebody who was overly indulgent no and you had actors you had Sally Field and Pierce Brosnan Right. acting across from this guy, not knowing what he was going to say on take number five or six. Sure. So we had to have a camera on then because he's, I mean, the word genius is used a lot these days, but he, he comes up with these things so quickly he doesn't remember that he said them in the next take. Right. It's just he's possessed. I sometimes tell people shooting Mrs. Doubtfire was like shooting a documentary. And by the time we got to the editing room with millions of feet of film at the time, <laughs> we weren't shooting digitally yet. We had four or five different versions of the film. We had the PG version, the PG-13, the R, and the NC-17. I showed Marsha, who was the producer, because the film needed to be PG-13, so we knew we couldn't have an R-rated right. version of Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. I showed Marsha a cut of the film, and then Robin wanted to see it with an audience. And that was the sort of the thing that sealed the deal, because the audience really responded it was like it really was a huge response. So he wasn't that intrusive about cutting the film, and he just as long as the film worked in front of an audience, he was happy. Yeah, he left you alone. To that make was it. Film. It's just every day he we developed this sense of trust after a couple of weeks, and I would it was an incredibly exhausting shoot working fourteen hours a day, and I'd get home at night and I'd just pour myself a glass of wine, and the phone would ring, and it was Robin. How are dailies? How how was I in dailies? So right. he was he was very very obsessive in terms of his own performance. And Doubtfire sort of received mixed reviews. So for me, I, because, because of my love of, of film history and because of my love of certain films, there was a level of keeping it very real by reading what some of these people were saying. Now, some, I, I should probably be, have a tougher skin and say, I don't give a shit what they're saying. So with Doubtfire, there was a sense that we had created a movie that was very successful, a, lo- a lot of people fell in love with, but it didn't. For me, personally, I didn't get to that point where I wanted, you know, I always wanted to have that level of critical success and commercial success as well. I just wasn't there yet. So I managed to stay hungry. I mean, there was a feeling of me that I needed to accomplish a lot more. And I really still feel that way. I I still felt that there's a long way to go. Back on Doubtfire, I felt that there was a long way to go. Mrs. Doubtfire grossed over $440 million worldwide. The Harry Potter films did even better. Two years ago, Chris Columbus produced The Help, a much smaller film which earned a Best Picture Oscar nomination. 
Clearly, Chris is skilled at selecting the right material to work with, or maybe he just surrounds himself with the right people. Holy cricket! You're Harry Potter! I'm Hermione Granger. So when these books that are these juggernauts come, who first comes to you and says, you're going to direct those as a film? Well, it was my daughter, because she was the one who tried to convince me for about a year and a half to read the Harry Potter books. And finally, when I did, and I realized I wanted to make the movie, there were 25 other directors who, who were in line. They called it at Warner Brothers a bake-off. So I was in line because Spielberg had dropped out. Steven Spielberg had dropped he out. He was the one that was going to direct the he film. He was going to direct the film. I think he wanted to combine the two books, add right. some cheerleaders and stuff. And I think that she wasn't, you know, Joe Rowling was not up for that. So I had the last meeting because I wanted to rewrite the script for the studio. Um, and when I went in to meet with Warner Brothers, they said, why do you want to make this movie? And I said, because I've rewritten it for you for free. Now, no one ever does yeah, anything for free yeah, in yeah, Hollywood. Yeah. So it, took, it still took them a few weeks to say yes, but I did get the gig. There was still one obstacle. I had to fly to Scotland to meet with J.K. Rowling. So I flew to Scotland, met with Joe, who I was expecting. I hadn't seen many photographs of her at that point. I was expecting Miss Marple. I was expecting some yeah. 60-year-old heavy-set woman in a floral dress, and it was she's, she's younger than, than we are. She's very, very funny, one of the funniest people I've ever met. Sharp as a tack, and we hit it off immediately. We spent three, she spent three hours listening to me. I had diarrhea of the mouth because I was telling her the kind of movie I wanted to make. At the end of it, she said, that's exactly the kind of film I'd wow. want to make. And, and I knew I got the job. And once I knew I got the job, I was scared out of yeah. my wits. Everyone was obsessed about who was going to be cast in the movie. How were we going to design Hogwarts? What was Quidditch going to be like? And I thought, the only way to get through this, so I'm not standing in a corner unable to face my crew, was to just sort of bury my head and start to work. And again, and she, and she was around during the screenwriting process or around the shooting as well, Rowling? No, she only came out for one day during the shooting. Why? Just to visit. She wasn't that interested in the right. shooting. <laughs> she just, as you can, if you're a visitor on a set, it's not that exciting after right. about two hours. Is, yeah. She came out when we were shooting Diagon Alley. But during the screenwriting, pro during the rewriting process and during some of the design work, you know, I would take her through the Harry Potter factory, I called it. We would walk through the art department and I would show her what I was thinking of for Diagon Alley or Gringotts or Hogwarts or the wizarding robes. And she just was always very collaborative. She'd say, oh, like the wand. Harry's wand couldn't have any des specific design to it because it was from an old tree that wouldn't, it was just a little crooked. And, you, and it was that kind of specific comments that really sort of helped me find where I was going. I never was off the rails, though, because we did, we did share a similar, I think, vision for what we wanted the movie to be. And I... She would give us also indications that the films were going to get the books. There were only three books at the time, remember, were going to get progressively darker. And this had to be sort of the first one was sort of like the storybook version of Harry Potter. It's his origin story. It's still a little dark. Yeah, origin. And Hogwarts had to feel like the most welcoming place in the world. And then we would get little indications that it's going to start to fall apart as we move forward. We set that all into motion, that the movies would get darker and darker and darker. Did you, did you have a sense... Did you say, I think I've got this, I th I, the I, film I, version of these books, I've got the recipe? Unfortunately, not, not until we were finished. We knew we were – we knew things were going well. So even though the kids had not had a lot of experience in acting, they were amazingly charming on screen and they felt like those characters. I think the first day that we really 
felt that we were on the right track is we shot the um, the opening of the Great Hall, and we're on this huge crane, and the kids are walking in, and our our visual effects guy John Richardson attached. 450 candles to strings. Everyone had to light all these candles. And I remember sitting in dailies and seeing the shot where the camera cranes up through the floating candles and realizing, oh, I think we're on to something here. Yeah. Uh, And and so that all felt good. We still had no... Yeah, it was fun. That's cool. That's cool. The the last film you directed was Percy Jackson. Percy Jackson, yeah. The last thing. feature you did. Yeah. So if that was released in 2010, you shot that in 2009. Right. So you haven't directed a feature in four years. No. And part of that was because of the, of the help. There was a uh, writer-director named Tate Taylor, sort of a director that I had supported over the years. He did a lot of short films, was an actor in L.A. When he'd come to San Francisco, he'd sit down and meet with me and show me what he was working on. He came into my office one day and said, this is my first feature that I want to make. My best friend wrote this book, The Help. I read the script, and I said, this is a fantastic movie. I wanted to direct it. And Tate was like, I want to direct it, and I want you to support me so I don't get fired. So Steven Spielberg and I sort of reunited to do it. Steven and I met um, in London. Steven said, as long as you promise that you'll be on the set every day. I said, but when I produce a movie, I like to go for the first week and then go off and do it. So those guys financed it, DreamWorks? DreamWorks financed it. Uh, We shot in Mississippi in the summertime a couple of years ago. And uh, And you were on the set every day? (laughs) I was there every day. How was that? It was fantastic. I was going to say, what's that like for you to be the pure producer? Well, as I said, usually I just... I, if I'm the producer, I like to go for a couple of days, make sure it's it's all in good hands, and then I like to go off and direct or write. In this situation, since so I made a promise to Stephen, I was there the entire time. And the interesting thing was because of the level of performances in that film, mm-hmm. getting actually just being able to watch these actresses perform every day. Viola Davis and, and Bryce Dallas Howard and Emma Stone. It just was an amazing front row seat to these these performances and Tate was just wonderful with the actresses he was just he's an actor himself again that connection is really helpful so for me it was it was a bit of a learning experience it opened up another sort of part of filmmaking that I want to get involved with I was going to say do you want to make films like that because my last question for you is here's a guy who the flame for you that you were drawn to from things I've read about you were movies like The Godfather Mm mm-hmm but you haven't made a movie like The Godfather. Right. And I'm wondering, is that a direction you want to go in now? You see a movie like The Help and you say, do you want to do more, not even so much racially themed, but much more kind of intense drama? Here's the thing. I'm not particularly, uh, I'm not saying I'm not happy with the movies I've made, but I still have a long way to go. Right. Hopefully I can live long enough to get to where I really will be happy with it. Maybe it won't happen. But what I really, really want to do, I would like to make the kind of movies that you and I grew up on, which are the kind of movies, look, Dog Day Afternoon, The Godfather, Serpico, all of those movies were movies that were not only about something, but but were great dramatic films with an enormous sense of humor, by the way. All the films I mentioned are very funny Mm -hmm. at times, yet at the same time, they reached a huge audience. And to me, that's what it was about. I didn't want to make a film that was so special and indie and tiny that Mm -hmm. it wouldn't reach a wide audience. I always felt that when I was watching movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and I was watching Dog Day Afternoon, the performances were so amazing and so authentic and real. And those movies found an audience. Now, unfortunately, most of those types 
of films are being made for television. So it's, uh, yeah. And apropos of that, you've made films now, written, directed, and produced huge films, some of the biggest films of the last 25 years. You've been doing this for 25 years. How has the business changed in the 25 years from your standpoint? Well, I, you know, when Is I... Is it harder to get that movie made? You're talking about that Sidney Lumet-esque drama. Yeah, I've spent the better part of the last year and a half writing films like that, but I can't... It's very, very difficult to get them made in an environment that really is only interested in either sequels or superhero films. If you walked into a, a studio executive's office in 1978 and said you wanted to make Spider-Man... They would have laughed at you. Yeah. yeah. Comic books. Oh, my God. That's yeah. the lowest form of entertainment. Well, now we're in a situation where that's mostly what's being made. So it's difficult. The help kind of, you know was made because the book was so successful and we made it for $28 million, which for a period piece is relatively inexpensive. So if we can find that way to do more of those films, I'd love to do them. And that's probably one of the reasons I haven't directed. The help has really gotten into my head in a big way and said, you can make these movies and people will go see them. And where I've gotten into trouble in my career, movies like Bicentennial Man, movies like Beth Cooper... Again, when I did them for fun or when I thought, oh, this will be fun, I'll just go out and make a movie like we're back in film school. It's not the case anymore. There's much more responsibility. Chris Columbus won't stop making movies, but he has taken a slight detour. His first novel, House of Secrets, a middle school fantasy adventure, is out this year. Chris sent an early draft to J.K. Rowling. She said it was too fast-paced. Slow down, she told him. Deepen the characters and work on the complexity. Chris Columbus says he and his co-author Ned Vizzini took that advice to heart. Coming up, my conversation with theater and film director Stephen Daldry. He's had three Oscar nominations for Best Director, but still fantasizes about other careers. Town and country planning. Traffic lights, really interested in traffic lights, subway systems. So you're an engineer. Mass transit systems. This is Alec Baldwin. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? 
It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Stephen Daldry grew up in the theater. He began directing plays at age 16. He went on to run several theaters before spending most of the 1990s at the Royal Court in London. Since 2001, he spent more time making movies. His most recent film, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, starred Tom Hanks and Sandra Bullock. But Stephen Daldry still chooses projects based on the same criteria he used when he was working with fringe theater groups. I don't know what you, who you make stuff for. I always make stuff for myself and my... Right. You know, so you make stuff for your friends, yourself, and see whether it makes any sense to you. Your first film was Billy Elliot, correct? Yeah, but that was a that was a really weeny one. Do you know yeah, what I mean? no, <laughs> that's what I mean. So you so you so you see where like well, that was that was a small film, and then you uh, then we, we when we made that literally we made it for next to nothing. Right. And is there a difference for you in making films and producing shows and directing shows in the theater? The difference between the two. A big difference. One is that in the theatre, everybody's in the same room. So everybody can see what the, the beast is. Everyone right. can see what it's made. And you start at the beginning and you finish. And the people you start with are the people you finish with. In the movies, the people you, you prep with aren't the people you shoot with. And the people you shoot with aren't the people you finish with. And the people you finish It's more like a relay race making a movie. Yeah, to me, it's more like cooking. You know, like there's a guy that makes the lettuce out in California. There's a guy that grew the tomatoes in yeah. Georgia. And none of them ever meet each other or know each other. They ship it all and... You cut it up into a salad and mix it all together. And that's why it's, it's more lonely. Because it's so compartmentalized that way. Yeah, and I mean, I remember the first day that I ever shot anything on film, and you know, suddenly around the camera people were saying these extraordinary things to me, like, you know, rolling, you know, and all these things. When was that? On Billy Elliot, and people were going, they're saying all these strange words, you know, and then everyone's looking at me, and I'm going, what are they doing? What? Yeah. And you go, oh, I, I'm meant to say action? People really say that, do they? I thought it was some sure. sort of, like, joke. And since then, I've never really liked saying action, which is why I prefer just to keep rehearsing and roll the camera while we're rehearsing and then eventually ease into... Some people don't want to say the word action. I, th I find it bizarre myself. And what, when it freaks the actors out. Action, do it now. Turn on now. It's it like, is not very intimate. It's not, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's like an assault on the yeah. actor. I directed a film once, and I couldn't stand it. I really didn't care for it. But I wonder, I've always wondered if I had the, the inclination to absorb more about lighting and cutting and editing and has that been a big thing for you this, that journey of learning more about how films are put together and I love editing you do it's my favorite bit of the process it, it is why um, a film is written three times you write it to start it you then you rewrite it as you make it and then you do the final and proper write as you put it all together and it's like a jigsaw puzzle if you like jigsaw puzzles you love making movies but it's actually putting the pieces together finding out the rhythms and I would imagine that the experience of editing makes anyone a better filmmaker in terms of teaching you what you need to have in the can. People say to me, you know, what should I do to learn how to make a film? Just go and buy Final Cut Pro and just start shooting stuff and then just start editing and you'll learn everything you need to know about making a movie from editing it. 
Did you feel that you had learned everything that you needed to learn about directing actors from your years in the theater in England in terms of directing actors for film? Was there a difference? No. It was the same? I think it's the same. How so? Well, <laughs> I... <laughs> Let it rip. Most of my life, you know, all my <laughs> life has been spent in the theater, you know. And, yes. Uh, all you need to work out with an actor is how to talk to them. And actors come with their own methodology, like you. You know, you've come with your own methodology of where you've picked up. And usually actors, a lot of actors, particularly American actors, if I may dare to say this. Let it rip. Come from a, a, some notion, some, they've picked up some ideas of what acting might be or what a, what a methodology might be. It's easier in Europe, it's easier in England, because usually people have got a shared methodology. In other words, there's a language that people sort of understand that you can actually have a conversation about what, what literally you're meant to be doing at any one particular time. A lot of American actors got lost in this idea of the method or some sort of notion of character. They keep going on about, well, my character this, or, and you go, what are you talking about? Where did you get this idea of character from? It's easier in Europe because people tend to be more strictly, come from a, a, a training whereby... A common training. A common training. Because there's a lot of training going on here, but that training is a different kind of training. It's a different sort of training. Yeah. So the difficulty is just finding a language to talk to actors so you can be honest. Well, I think that, well, you know, one time I was watching a concert and I was watching some famous uh, musician like Tom Petty. He was performing at a benefit and I turned to a friend of mine and I had this chill run up my spine and I said, do you see what these people are doing? They're all doing the same thing at the same time, and they're all of one at the same time. Do you know, it's, it's so And that just, doesn't happen in the theater and in acting a lot of times. I mean, it does in England. No, no, it's really hard. It's the only, you know, people say... Sometimes people are doing their own thing. What is the job of the director? The job of the director is, you've got one job, is to make sure everybody's in the same show. Yeah. And you can have fantastic films, fantastic, fantastic theater. They're in one show, he's in another show, she's doing something else. They're all being brilliant in their own way, but they're not in the same space. Getting everybody in the same space is the hardest thing. But what's your methodology? Where were you, what, if I was to ask you, what you, do you define your acting in a particular way? Well, it depends. I mean, I try to think of it in terms of rhythm. There's a key you play in. Uh, you, have, you have to pace it up. It has to be fast. You have to let, make the audience catch up to you. Don't put a lot of unearned pauses in there. Really, pace is a big part of it. But did you train? Yeah, I went to NYU, and as I get older, everything's technical. I mean, I literally mark my lines in the scripts that I do now, like a musical score, stop, hard, consonant, hear, move, dip, rise, all these things, emphasis. Before that, though, it was all about authenticity. I would say that method acting was about, like, if you said to me, so uh, I want you to do this, I'd say, well, I've got to go meet a bunch of surgeons. Let's go find out how hard surgeons really behave in the operating room, because I don't want to do anything that's inauthentic. And then, of course, there's that famous Walter Matthau line where they said to Walter Matthau, do you want to go observe some surgery? And he said, no, I'm a movie actor. No one expects me to know anything about surgery. So we're just going to fake it and indicate it. And, and you're absolutely right about the technical. I mean, in England, we do tend to be more technical. But American actors, you know, even I remember, you know, I worked with Meryl Streep on a movie. And, you know, and Meryl has this, you know, extraordinary emotional ability. But she does pause before the verb. And I, go, I know why you're doing it, because you think I can't cut away. I can absolutely assure you I can cut away from you, even if you pause before the verb. And she knew she was pausing before the verb. Well, she, she definitely <laughs> is a maestro. She is the maestro. Yeah, she's the maestro. Her and Nicholson, they, they know every trick there is to force the cut in the film or to uh, deny the cut in the film. That's right. But I think that um, 
it, it is thrilling when you do a piece and you have a director who can help you. I've had to do what the modern actors had to do, which is to come prepared to be self-directing in case you didn't have anything for me. I it's so painful. I, it's but, agonizing. Because I'd rather come and have you say to me, well, of course, it's this. And I would, don't you realize it's this? And you have got a font of information. I would go crazy. But I find it really crazy when actors come in Self-prepared because they've done some journey that they go and you're, and you're going well. I, well, this is and again you go. Back, They're showing you photographs of a trip they went on without you. Yeah, or, and then they again this comment, you know, my character, and you're going look, it's not your character, okay? It's ours, and we're going to make it up now. Interesting. I've never heard that before. That's it. It's, it's ours. It's ours. It's not your character. I'm going to remember that. It's ours. Well, my character wouldn't do that. Well, let's change the character then because we're going to do that. So, yeah. You know what yeah, is? Let's this? talk about a character that would do that. <laughs> That's right. Let's change it. What do you miss about running a place like the court, which everybody just adores the work there and loves the court? Do you miss it? I miss it. And I suspect I'll go and run another theater. I mean, it's too much fun. It's about community. It's about having a community of people that, you know, you're staying with for a period of time, a number of years you commit yourself to, and trying to do something. You know, I don't know why you make work. I mean, I make work to change the world. I think that's the only reason to do anything. And getting a group of people in to start a conversation with a community and with the society you live in is going to be the greatest thing you can do. Can you do both right now or no? You certainly can't make movies and run a theater, no. You can't. No, movies are too obsessive. Yeah, it's, it's like it's two years of your life. Just whatever you do, it's two years, yeah. yeah. Two years is fast compared to the years it took to turn Billy Elliot into a musical. What does it feel like when you're dancing? I don't know. So it feels good. We made this little film... Nobody was really, nobody was interested, by the way. You know, a kid who wants to be a dancer, you know, like, please. But we took it to Cannes, and it, the first showing in Cannes, for some unknown reason, Elton John was there. And at the party afterwards, Elton said, you know, this is going to be better on stage. I mean, it's a great movie, but I want to write the music for this on stage. And we went, it's Elton John, I'd never met him before. You know, it's like, oh, my God, you know, what? Well, no. You know, thanks, but no. And then he kept on going for Why did you say no? Because we just finished the film, and we you just weren't ready to think about just that. Not even ready for it. But he kept, he was persistent and carried on, and he would literally start writing stuff and write songs. And he'd ring me up in my kitchen, <laughs> and I put him on speakerphone, <laughs> and he said, "Look, I've written it. How, how about this one?" And I'd be cooking in my kitchen, and then uh, and, and Elton John is serenading you on speakerphone. On speakerphone, well, you really did fall into a kind of a Lewis Carroll hole there. I think the stage show is better than the movie. It's found its natural home. Isn't it amazing how that is a big part of this business, how you do fall into a hole one day? You weren't sitting there, I would imagine, at the court saying, I've got to get out of here and make films, you know. Doesn't that happen to you every day, though, that life changes in a second? Right. One such turning point for you, I think, from what I could gather from reading was that you were a clown's apprentice, correct? Yes, I was interested in circus when I was uh, finishing university. So I... I suppose I sought out this guy called Elder Maletti, who was a great Italian clown. And then I went to work with him in Italy. I worked in... How long? A year. How was that? Il Circo di Nando Orfe. It was a hard circus. I mean, it wasn't... Um, it what does was, that mean? <laughs> it, I love that. What does it mean, a hard circus? A hard circus is it's three shows daily. Uh, it's a hard schedule. A hard schedule. I was in charge of the giraffes as well. I had to look after the giraffes. And then we would travel by train, and then I would take the giraffes off the train and put them into their little 
uh, drive the giraffes. So it really is like you see in these uh, period movies where it's like Dumbo, like greatest show on earth and everything. Where it's there's everyone's multitasking. Everyone's multitasking. You're, you're the clown and you're cleaning the giraffe pen. Driving the giraffes through these Pompeii, you know me, the giraffes, and Pompeii. And people talk about you know the animals being mistreated, which I, you know, people have different opinions about. But the people being so mistreated, the people. You know, who were they mistreated by? Management. Management themselves, the the hierarchy. A lot of drinking. A lot of very, very tough living. It was a hard life. We were basically going to be training in Italy for a year, and then we were going to go off to Moscow State Circus. When the call, you know, okay, we're going off to Moscow now, I just went, you know what, I've done this for a year, I'm off. Your filmmaking experiences, it sounded a moment ago when we were talking like they've been relatively emotionally secure experiences for you as a filmmaker, and you've been very content and happy making films. Filmmaking hasn't been another hard circus for you? People, I I do understand a lot of filmmakers have a very hard time making films, and I've been blessed. I've got friends of mine who have that experience of sitting in the trailer and spending your whole time trying to defend what you're doing and fighting and cutting, and and I haven't had that experience. But a lot of that is because of Scott Rudin, who, for me, has always been a, a huge filmmaker support fighting for me in the right way. Do you find something out about yourself every film you make? Is there a part of you that you lay bare that you weren't aware of when you make a film? Everything's therapy. Right. Don't you find? Yes. It can be. It it is. Every piece of work you make, you you have to explore yourself. The Reader, what was the therapy for you? Which I love that film, by the way. I was was completely smitten with that. I I worship her. Kate? I worship her. I'm unabashed about it. (laughs) I am completely immune to all the charms of all movie actresses except her. I saw her at an award show and I practically swallowed my tongue. (laughs) Yeah, she's fantastic. Um, The Reader. I spent a lot of time in Germany. As a kid, I spent, you know, learned German and spent a lot of time there. And the idea of, of a country crippled for many generations by something that happened and how it was still coming to terms with what it went through and why it went through it and the collective guilt. So for me, yeah, it was an exploration of my school days in Germany. And what about The Hours? Well, The Hours is a... Is a complicated film about the one thing that all the films that I've made tend to have in common is they're all about loss in one way or another and what the nature of loss is everybody has it at some point in their lives and that was a study in three women who were going through a profound sense of loss loss is really my subject you had two women win the Oscar (laughs) coming out of your how did you feel about that I mean, it must have been enormously gratifying for you. Enormously gratifying. I mean, it's always fantastic when the actors do well, isn't it? Did you find that Kate and Nicole Kidman in The Hours, who won the Oscar for that film, did you find that they came to the party with that British sense of uh, working and the, uh, the shared experience with you? Were they more in line with that? They are. They were. And up for rehearsal. I love rehearsing. And Nicole rehearsed forever. Kate rehearsed forever. On this film, we rehearsed forever. You know. It's part of the process. And um, do you rehearse? Well, I've done films where we did some rehearsal. And uh, I remember one time they had a very formalized rehearsal process. But it was constantly interrupted by the department heads coming in and summoning the director to go and look at something. And he'd run out. So we, you know, we had his attention you know, fleetingly. But I've, I've done films where we had, uh, I, would, I would crave that. I'd love that. You, you don't have to answer this question because it's going to embarrass you. But I'll, I'll just tee up this ball. You're a very charismatic man. You're very charming. You are the nicest. And you're man. very seductive. You have a kind of a very seductive veneer to you. 
And I'm wondering, do you think that that helps you with what you do? Because when the guy walks in the room, or the woman, because I've worked with some women directors, but there's mostly men, let's face it. And when that guy walks in the room and he looks like a high school shop teacher with a bunch of pens sticking out of his pocket, you know what I mean? If he doesn't have any kind of uh, chi to him at all. You're a very seductive guy, and you're a very, very kind of appealing guy. Do you find that that works for you? Do you use that to your advantage when you're directing? Don't <laughs> smirk at me. <laughs> do you? I don't know. I don't do it consciously. You don't consciously try to seduce the people you work with? It's always going to be a love affair with your actors. If you're not in love with them, it's not going to pan out. You literally have to fall in love or else. And they with you. And they with you. And then you can... Do your actors fall in love with you? I try to make them. You do, don't you? <laughs> I bet you they do. Because it's so intimate. It's such a private and such a... And it requires such honesty. But one day I'd love to talk to you about a play. Should we do one? I'd love to do a play. Well, I don't, I don't know if you're going to have time. You're not going to have any time to do a play with me. Good God, no. No, come on. We're going to do one at the public. I'm sure they'd love it. Let's see. Uh, the Hours, The Reader, extremely close with uh, Tom Hanks and Sandra Bullock. And you're going to stop all that to go do a play with me? I don't yeah, think so. I, think I so. can hear your publicist really screaming now. <laughs> She's calling your agent right now. Stephen Daldry has yet to call, but I'll give him time. He's currently directing the film adaptation of the children's novel Trash, starring Martin Sheen and Rooney Mara, to be released next year. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive. More in-depth and honest conversations with artists, policymakers, and performers like Kathleen Turner. So I did Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. Honestly... Michael Douglas was calling me up. Jack Nicholson was calling me up. Warren Beatty was calling me up and saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You know, they'll just kill you. Yeah. And I said, you know, you don't understand. I'm better on stage. And I think I am. Go to heresthething.org to hear more. Here's the Thing is produced by Emily Botin and Kathy Russo with Chris Bannon, Jim Briggs, Ed Herbstman. Melanie Hoops, Monica Hopkins, Trey Kay, Sharon Mashihi, and Lou Okowski. Thanks to Larry Josephson and the Radio Foundation. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.